Hi, and welcome to FBCC Nature Journal, our new podcast for everyone who loves nature. I'm John Fraley, longtime FBCC instructor in wildlife conservation and introductory ecology. In fact, I've been an instructor for 35 years. It doesn't seem possible I'm that old, but I am. <laughs> Maybe it seems possible to you when you're listening to me. Also had a 40-year career with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Park going along parallel to that. So I love nature and I love wildlife. And in our Flathead Valley Community College Nature Journal, we'll be focusing on the critters and quirks of nature found on the campus and the wide surrounding Flathead Basin. And that includes the Bob Marshall and Glacier National Park. We aim to keep it lively and fun. Together, we hope to learn lots of fun facts about the fascinating flora and fauna that we are so lucky to live with in the Flathead. Our producer is Colin Burkhardt, a student employee here at the FBCC Library. And also thanks to Susan Matter, the library director, for offering us the library as our podcast home. Today's guest is Racer Powell, a recent FBCC graduate who led an ecology project for our introductory ecology class on the Stillwater right here on campus. Racer, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here on the, the first ever FBCC Nature <laughs> Journal. It's pretty You must exciting. be really important, right? Yeah, it's Well, actually, you're so. one of the best students I've ever had in 35 years, so I thought we'd start off with you. Oh, thank you. And uh, this great project that you guys did on the Stillwater River. And so that was done in, in conjunction with our introductory ecology class in the fall of 2019. And... It was quite a project, wasn't it? It was. It was really cool because we got everyone in the class involved. It was a relatively small class, so there was only, I think, five of us. So it was really great because it was kind of all hands on deck, and we all got to, to go down and sample what the river had to offer. Right. And you know what was fun to watch was you happened to be a kind of person that is inclusive. You, you led the project, but I noticed how you kind of gave everybody an equal say in the project and made everyone feel involved. I was very impressed with that about you as well as your technical competence too. And so we looked at this this food chain, this web, food web or food pyramid of all these different critters. And we asked, you know, what lives there? What interacts in the Stillwater River uh, on the campus here? Uh, but first of all, let's tell people, what is a food web? How do you define a food web? So food web is, is at its most basic, just an interaction of all of the, all of the critters and, and plants in a system and how energy flows um, from the producers all the way up to, to kind of your, your main predators. Right, and a lot of people also call it perhaps a food chain or trophic pyramid, but really it's more like a web, and we'll get to that more about all the different uh, interactions between all these critters. But it's, you hit it on the head, it's, it's, a, it's energy throw, flow through this system. So when you walk down to the Stillwater River on campus here, I think you're going to look at it a lot differently when we're done here today, when you realize all the different critters that are found there and what they do. So in those environs in the Stillwater River itself and, and the, the riparian area around it, there's at least 49 different critters that share 260 relationships, 34,148 pathways. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> not too much. We'll be here all day. <laughs> exactly, right. So we sampled, when we sampled, it was in the fall time. So we were able to find 49 different taxa. So really, like you mentioned, just 49 different creatures down there. Um, a lot of them were aquatic invertebrates. Probably close to 20 of those were aquatic invertebrates. But then we had, uh, we had fish. We had some, we found some snakes. And then we were also looking at 
um, animals that were outside of the stream bed as well. So we were looking at birds, uh, most specifically ospreys. We were looking at white-tailed deer. So kind of everything that had any sort of impact on that system or relationship with that system. And, you know, you and I have talked before about how pike was sort of the apex predator there. But really, there's yes. a couple things that eat pike. One is the osprey. Another thing is mink. Exactly. We've seen mink down there as well. Absolutely. So. So let's start with the plants. Uh, where does that stream energy come from, the plant energy? So there's really two different places it can come from. Autochthonous energy is all of the biomass that is produced within the stream. So when you think about that plant-wise, you're thinking about the algae that grows on the rocks down at the bottom, any aquatic plants that live right there in the stream bed. Um, and then there's also allochthonous biomass, which is produced by everything outside of the stream. So all of the trees, all of the shrubs that live right along the stream bed that may be dropping leaves in um, or just kind of shedding any sort of debris. So that's really where the base of your food web starts. Yeah, excellent. Excellent take on that. It's spoken like the true ecology star. <laughs> <laughs> so we have outside material, we have inside material in the stream powering it. And that's what gives it the base energy flow that starts into the into the community of, of animals there at the stream. So let's talk about the insects inverts uh, first of all. So we're talking about about 20 different types of in, insects and aquatic invertebrates in there. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's there was four or five that had the most tied up in biomass, which are the keystone species. But let's highlight a few of those. Which ones were did you find interesting? Yeah, so a lot of the keystone species that we found, the ones that were kind of most involved with that food web were, we had some perlidae stoneflies in there. A lot of damselfly and dragonfly nymphs were very predominant in there. And then crayfish or connectes um, was really kind of the, the bulk of not only the biomass that we found at least, but seemed to have the most relationships because it served as both predator and prey uh, for a number of different species. So really it, it served as a pretty big linchpin in the system as a whole. Yeah, if you want to have some fun on the river down there, just go down anytime in the summer and look along the edge under the rocks and you'll see, I always watch the crayfish grow up through the summer year, uh, through the year down there. They start off as really tiny, like maybe the, the size of a pencil eraser. And then they just slowly grow that summer for so the, the young of the year at the end of the summer are maybe about an inch and a half long. But there's tons of crawdads in there. Um, those damselflies, if you're an aquatic insect nut like I am, you're real impressed because they have a good population of what we call C. nigrionidae, but they're, what they are are the showy damselfly. They're real showy. They have bigger wings than most damselflies do. They look almost like a dragonfly. Yeah. And there was tons of those. So that That's biomass cool. being tied up into the dragonfly, the, the uh, crawdad, some of the stoneflies, like mentioned a couple of the stoneflies there. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the things in particular that was cool about looking at this food web, or the way that we approached it at least, is we were looking at where these aquatic invertebrates were at at different instars of their life too. So at certain points, you know, especially with dragonfly larvae, they are very predacious in kind of their earlier parts of life, and then they produce or kind of transition into more of their, their what we think of, of dragonflies. And so it's interesting to see how their relationship with the web changes through time. And, you know, we had this, the, obviously, a lot of mayflies. Like I was telling you, I was down there today and was watching the swallows just nail all those mayflies as they were emerging out of the, out of the stream. There's so many relationships you can see down there. And let's talk a little bit about the top surface river and the underground river. 
Yeah, that's kind of one of the interesting things that we looked at too was, so below the river, there's an area called the hyperreic zone. And so it's a, it's a section, it's basically an underground river where it's a mixing of groundwater and surface water that is not only below the river, but extends to the, the river adjacent as well. <clears throat> so there's a lot of, you know, there's pebbles and kind of fine silt and leaves a lot of room for aquatic invertebrates, uh, especially stonefly larvae. We also found some clams and snails in there. And there's a whole kind of lower system that we couldn't see. So we did our best to survey that. It is a little bit tricky with the right. means that we had, but there there is a whole other layer of relationships happening underneath the river. The way that hyperic community was discovered was, well, Dr. Stanford from Biological Station was doing his research on stoneflies and someone called them and, and, and mentioned that there were there were maggots coming up in their wells <laughs> off the river off the river channel. Maggots, yeah, and they went up there and they were actually stoneflies that were in this underground river that flows under the main river that you don't even know about. So when you, when you look at, next time you look at a river, imagine under the, under the gravel and rocks, you know, if you turn over the rocks, you see all those bugs, but underneath there's a whole other world of insects living under there and a whole other stream flowing in that, in that groundwater. Um, one of the other really, really interesting bugs that I think we found was the, uh, uh, there was that, the mayflies that had suction cups on the, on their, bottom. Do you remember that built from yes. their gills? Yeah, yeah, that was, and we looked at basically different feeding patterns as too. So it was interesting to see how even, you know, similar species shared different feeding patterns. So you have scrapers or right. razors as mm -hmm. well as, um, you know, there were, I wrote some notes down here, there was also uh, collectors and filter feeders. And right. so there's really a whole wide range of, of feeding habits going on down there. And those collectors are pretty neat because those are the, a lot of those are the caddisflies. And we'll quiz you here. So how do they collect the detritus coming down through the current? So they have a, if, I, if I'm correct, it's been a while, <laughs> but they have a, a silky kind of web that they use to collect that, which they sort of build this casing for themselves with and sort of provide themselves a little bit of shelter with, yeah. um, as well as kind of attract any, any and food sources. And they can spin sources. that net out there, and then that catches those particles coming down. And that's because they're related to what other order of insects? They oh, spin silk. Now you're putting me on the spot. Um, Butterflies. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say. So they're, spin they're spinning silk, right. and, and so they're related to that Lepidoptera. It's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So let's let's turn to the fish. First, we had the sculpin, the little bullhead that people... Yes. And we, we, of course, tell us about the electrofishing when we did some electrofishing there. So that was great. We had um, we had a member of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks come by, and we got to actually use an electrofishing unit to survey the fish. And so it's essentially this big backpack that you put on that has a... a very low electrical current through it that extends through a, a rod and at the end of the rod there's a, a ring that sort of just transmits this this slight current so you can walk through the stream and sort of wave it in front of you kind of like a metal detector really mm -hmm. but it just stuns the fish momentarily so you're able to to net them take your measurements and then put them back on harm so it was really cool to get that opportunity and especially for the class as a whole we all got to try it out yeah. um, and it was a it was a really great time so we saw the sculpins, which you wouldn't catch hook and line. They're like little bullheads, they're called. <clears throat> and we also had pike minnow, which used to be called squawfish, uh, yellow perch, pea mouth. We had suckers. And let's, let's talk a little bit more about the, uh, the uh, northern pike. Yeah, so the northern pike, in terms of, of 
it being in the river, it is the apex predator. There are things outside of, of the river that will feed on that, but the pike really kind of determines, um, really kind of keeps all of the other fish in check, if you will. <laughs> uh, it is the, the main predator. And there's also instances, um, like you've mentioned before, of pike feeding on um, small waterfowl. I know that when you're trying to fish for pike, you know, sometimes you have flies that look like little mice. Um, and so yeah. they really feed on quite a wide range of things. They are uh, very predacious. As you noted, though, I don't think a, a typical sucker is going to come up and try to take on a pike. No, he'll exactly. end up in the pike's stomach very exactly. quickly. Yeah, but the <clears throat> yeah, one of the uh, when I was working for Fishline Parks, I did a lot of television interviews with reporters, and one of the reporters came in on, on a Monday morning, and he had a bandage on his wrist. We were going to do a piece on something. I can't remember what we were going to do an interview on. I said, "What happened to your wrist?" He said. Well, I caught a pike, it dropped off my lure, I reached down to grab the pike and it grabbed my wrist and I couldn't get it off. <laughs> so I always thought, oh, a pike are an apex predator, even with humans, if you don't watch what you're doing. Yeah, little freshwater sharks. Yeah, so, and then <clears throat> birds, we talked about the uh, osprey, of course there's eagles. And then what about the namesake bird? What's that one? Oh, red-tailed riffle. Yeah, the red-tailed hawk. Yeah, we, we kind of affectionately called this little section of the river the, the red-tailed riffle because right. I think it was our first time down there surveying we saw a, a red tail circling yeah. up above so yeah. um yeah that was pretty neat so we had a number of birds and as we mentioned the the, the uh, swallows also grabbing the insects as they come off um eagles possibly can grab the fish obviously the ospreys can so then we had a few mammals that we didn't always see when we were down there but they're obviously living there and the, the mink is a fish eating animal that was a big one yeah, yeah. seeing and the mink we've got the the the, the beaver Yes. And then what's another animal racer that goes around there and does deposit some alloctonous material into the stream? A white-tailed there deer you do that quite a bit, yes. <laughs> I can't yeah. stump you today. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, that's right. And so we got a lot of uh, input coming in from, from actually mammals that are outside. And they, we, we mentioned the four keystone species, a stonefly, a damselfly, a crayfish, and the northern pike. And those are keystone species just on the strength of all the biomass that they hold. Think about that energy is flowing around out there, but it's held in certain places, certain pools, in certain animals and plants, and a lot of it's held in those four species. So Absolutely. that's why they call it a keystone species. So again, just to, to uh, we're nearing the end here, how to wrap this all together. You, you actually worked with, after the class, you worked with Tyler, who was a mathematician using discrete mathematics and tell you Tell us how you calculated all those relationships, which none of the rest of us can understand. <laughs> yeah, so I barely understood it myself. But yeah, Tyler Ross was a, a, a really brilliant kid. And he used, like you mentioned, discrete math uh, and computer science. So what we did was we basically gave each one of these taxa that we found, these 49 taxa, um, just a number designation. So we would give them a number designation and then also basically which other net integers, if you will, which other numbers they interacted with and how many times. And he was able to come up with a food web uh, just based on these mathematical interactions. And the really cool thing is, is it came out mirroring almost exactly what ours came out with. Because mm. um, when we built ours, we were really just using literature that we had on hand and just kind of our knowledge of, of what ate what in that system. So it was really kind of gratifying to see that the math side of this project also backed up what we had initially created. Yep. And it's a, it's a very complex analysis. If anybody out there wants some great bedtime reading, they can uh, call us, uh, uh, leave a message on Facebook or where we're posted with our podcast, and I'll send you an actual 28-page copy of the paper that they did on that mathematical analysis. Um, but it's just amazing. Someone that's been in biology as long as I have, to when I, when I saw that analysis, I just thought to myself, yep, this is why I love to teach, because 
I always run into students that are actually more competent than I am and come up with these great, great relationships. So why is all this important? Why is it important to know uh, about this ecosystem, this whole system? Well, I think especially when you know how intricate and nuanced something like this is and you have a really good understanding of, of how all of these interactions make up what we know is this river, it's a lot easier to kind of, to be able to protect it. Because you know how important each and every part of that is, and you know if one little piece is removed that it can change the, the entire relationship of the, the river down there. So having that intimate knowledge, I think, just makes you a little bit more passionate to keep it the way it is. Yeah, I mean, you just look at it in a different way. And as I was telling you, my mentor, Bud Moore, who passed away about 10 years ago at age 94, he was the Forest Service Advisor on Ecosystem Management. And there's a lot of complex ways to, de to define ecosystem management, but the easiest way that he did it was keeping all the parts. So we know we have all these parts. Now yeah. you can really see how many parts there really are. Exactly. And if you pull out one or two of those parts, you're going to change everything, you know. And that's why when people say, well, what good's a snake? What good's a tick? What good's a, you know, this or that species? They all have this integral, this really showed me, this, they all have this integral little uh, role that they play in that, in that uh, ecosystem. So I think that you and I will probably both look at rivers a little differently after this great project. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was a very fun project. We had a very diverse, <clears throat> small group of students that did it. You did a great job keeping everybody feeling like they were part of it. And then you, we brought in the mathematician. I mean, it was quite a project, and I really congratulate that congratulate you for that but thanks a lot for coming on today absolutely Grayson. thank you so much for having me this you, is really exciting you bet well that's all the time we have today for this segment of nature journal and thanks for joining us and please watch the fbcc facebook page for more shows as they are posted also feel free to post questions or ideas our next show is going to feature mountain lions and all things cats with field expert jim williams a world-renowned mountain lion expert i'm john fraley and i'll see you next time